In the opening vision of the book of Revelation, we see the Son of Man, Jesus, returning to earth, and it says, he was clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. As I read this, I want, it, it kind of prepares us for what we're looking at in Zechariah 12 and 14. So I encourage you to like, what does this look like? What would this sound like? What are the details that, that God is including here? You see the Son of Man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This morning I want us to consider that that two-edged sword that was coming from the Son of Man as he returns in the end of days. Most commentators agree that this two-edged sword is the Word of God. And according to Hebrews 4, the Word of God pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So what does that mean? John Piper says that when when the Word of God goes forward, it's sort of asking and answering two questions. The first one is, are we born of God and spiritually alive? Or are we deceiving ourselves and spiritually dead? In today's text, we will see those who are alive and we will see those who are dead as the double-edged sword does its work. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 14, there are some extremely weighty verses in this text. And so our hope is that you would ready our hearts and ready our minds to to see what we're supposed to see on this particular Sunday morning. We're thankful that you are a God of the details, that you are more involved in this gathering than than we could ever wrap our heads around. Your ways are higher than our ways, and you are only good. And so, Lord, uh, we continue in worship as we we look at the, the text, and we humble ourselves before you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I'm preparing a sermon, I like to think about my thoughts. I like to think about my thoughts, and what I mean is I'll read through the text, which lately the ones that Lance assigned me are crazy texts that I'm reading through, like the one this morning, and I'm reading through it, and I'll read through it, read through it, read through it, and then when I'm in my truck going from job site to job site, I'm listening to it on audio, and when I say I think about my thoughts, what I mean is I try to consider what is the prevailing thought that comes to my mind as I'm reading the text. The goal of preaching is that the point of your sermon was, is whatever the point of the text was. So if you preach and the, the Scripture says this, but the whole point of your sermon is something totally different, that's a bit of a fail. So one of the ways I try to, to wrap my head and my hands around that is to, to think, what's the prevailing thought? And this week, as I was going through the text, the prevailing thought came in the form of a song. I'm not going to sing for you this morning. I know you're upset about that. But it came in the form of a song, really an old hymn of sorts, written by the psalmist and renowned hymn writer, uh, Johnny Cash. Title of the sermon, God's Gonna Cut You Down. And and as we, uh, the reason that song is in my head is because all you see throughout this text is just that two-edged sword coming through and doing its work. It'll cut you down in the way of judgment, or it'll cut you down in the way of 
salvation. So, as sort of a call to worship, a way to prepare our hearts and our minds to engage the text, let's take a listen to some Johnny Cash. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. completely convinced that Johnny Cash was listening to Isaiah, Zechariah, and Revelation when he wrote that song. It's a proven fact. It's in a, in a book somewhere. That, that has been in my head over the last couple weeks over and over again. Sooner or later, God's going to cut them down. So how does that apply? So let's look at our context this morning. We're in Zechariah. So if this is your first time here this morning, you're saying, okay, what, what's the context? We're just kind of parachuting in. In Zechariah, what we have is a word of God coming to Zechariah, who's a prophet, and he's speaking to those who have returned from the Babylonian exile, and their task is to rebuild the temple. Some have chosen not to return, and those who have returned are dealing with things like fear and vulnerability and doubt. I mean, imagine being in a war, being in a battle, and and your fort has been completely destroyed. And part of your task is to go back and rebuild it while the battle is still going on. You can imagine how disorienting that might be, how scary that might feel, how vulnerable you might feel, the doubt you might struggle with. God's people are disoriented. A friend of mine uh, recently was supposed to have a procedure that was a couple hours and a couple days recovery, and he's ended up in the hospital for well over a month. And I was talking to him yesterday, seeing how he was doing, checking on him. And he's in week five in the hospital. And he was just like, man, the hospital is the most disorienting place ever. You can't get good rest. There are beeps all over the place. There are sounds of machines. Every two hours, someone wants to gleefully introduce themselves to you and then poke and prod you and ask questions and take your vitals. And he was like, it's just disorienting. The hospital is a disorienting place. I think that gives us sort of a picture of what they might have been feeling as they came back to rebuild the temple. They're disoriented. And in verse 1 in chapter 12, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within you. What God does before he says what he's going to do is he reorients his people to himself. He says to to clear sort of that fog of war, that haziness, that, that disoriented reality. He said, remember me, I, God, the one who took care of everything above and everything below. I, God, who who hung the stars, continue to keep them in their place, have given every one of them names. I, God, who formed all of the earth that you are on, look at me. You need to be reoriented to your Lord before you hear what I'm going to do. So he reorients them to himself. And essentially what we're seeing in these verses in 12 and then in 14 is God is saying, this is who I am 
And then he says, this is what I'm going to do. So let's look at the first, or the next verse, and our first point of the morning. God will judge those who reject him. Now, very quickly, in my short time here at Crosspoint, I've become, you know, got a reputation of being like the hellfire and brimstone guy, but it's because of the texts that we, we, we are in. It says what it says, and so our first point this morning is sort of along those lines. God is going to judge those who set themselves against him. And what's interesting here is that God says that he's going to use Jerusalem to bring that judgment upon those who are opposed to him. He's going to cut them down, but the way he's going to cut them down is sort of use Jerusalem as the sword. And the first thing that it says is that God will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Show of hands if, if you've ever had too much to drink. I'm just kidding. Put your hands on. It's weird. That's, like some of y'all are like, and other ones are looking around. Jesus saw all that. He saw it all. I was surprised the first service no one raised their hand. Like 12 to 14 of you were like, been there. Yeah, so we all have a testimony. Um, so God will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. And what we're seeing here is this picture of those coming against Jerusalem. It's like as if there's a huge, imagine a huge bowl full of wine or whiskey or whatever you overdrank. And, and you see this huge bowl and you just see the nations coming to it as if they're just devouring Jerusalem. And they think we're just devouring them. But as they drink, they drink shame upon themselves. For those who try to consume Jerusalem those who try to consume God's people, those who try to consume the church of God, they will find themselves disoriented, incapable, staggering, and shameful. And then in the next verse it says, on that day, which is reported, repeated some 14 times, we're talking about when, when Jesus comes back in this, this, this length of time, when, when the Lord returns, he said, on that day, God will make Jerusalem like a heavy stone. God will make Jerusalem weighty, as if the nations are just plowing through these fields trying to exercise dominion over the world, and they come across this, this people of God, and it's just a stone. And, and he says that they're just going to try to remove the stone, and when they do, they're, they're going to injure themselves. They're going to hurt their backs. He's going to make them weighty. J Jerusalem are the only people who could say, well, God made me weighty. Um, it was, I heard a, a friend of mine posted something that said something along, I was trying to think about ways to express this, and, and that she posted a thing that said, um, prevent kidnapping, eat more cake. So the, the thing is, it's like, you know, if you eat more cake, the kidnapper's not going to take you, they'll take the one who's clearly eaten less cake. And so this picture of Jerusalem is that, they're like, let's move that stone, and oh man, it's weighty, because God has made Jerusalem weighty. They will injure themselves when they try to move and shake Jerusalem. And the next verse is crazy. It says, God will make the enemy's horses panic, the riders go mad, and the horses will also go blind. So just, just imagine a battalion of drunk horsemen on a bunch of blind horses who both they and their horses are kind of losing their minds. It's like a comedy show at that point, like, right? Like no one's scared of a battalion of drunk horsemen on blind horses, right? And why are they that way? Well, because God's a God of the details. When we're in the midst of trials, when we're in the midst of heartache, when we're in the midst of whatever it is we're facing, the reality is, is God's saying, 
my people, as you're rebuilding, as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're readying yourself for the return of Jesus, I'm the kind of God who can control the sight of a horse and the mind of a warrior. I can make both of them go mad. I can make both of them go blind if it's what is, is, is needed for you to move forward with what I've called you to. God is bringing them great comfort in here. And then he says, while my eyes are open to you. So while God's aim is to disorient those who are against his people and against him and to even blind their horses, he says, but while that disorientation is going on and that blinding is going on, I need you to orient yourselves to me and see me as God. My eyes are on you and I see you. You may feel like I don't see you because of what you're going through, but I see you. God needs them to know he is present with them. He's an ever-present help in trouble. They may be struck down, but they will not be destroyed. Which comes to the second point of the morning. God will judge those who reject him, but God will preserve those who belong to him through faith. Literally, if you're here, it's because God has preserved you. Everyone sitting here has been on the receiving end of that blessing. It says he does this through a handful of ways. In verse 5 it says God gives strength. God gives strength. And some of you might be thinking, well, I'm pretty strong myself. No, he's saying in the moment where by all physical reality, by all means of the way your body is, when you are physically, emotionally, and spiritually spent, in that moment I can give you strength. And in in verse 8 he says even the feeblest among you. So that's like you thinking, man, I can't, I don't know if I, can, if I can do these things that God's calling me to. I don't know if I have the ability to do that. And then your feeble little five-year-old speaks gospel truth and, and changes someone's life. Like that's kind of what we're talking about. Even the feeblest among you, the ones who don't feel strong, the ones who don't feel mighty, even the feeblest, God says, you will have strength like that of David who did great things. So God is encouraging us that he makes us strong. And then in verse 6 it says he makes Jerusalem's leadership strong. When it says the clans and the peoples, what God is saying is, in fact, I'll make you strong. I'll do all these things up here to those who are outside, but to you who are my people, I will make you strong, and then I will make your leaders like a flaming torch or a boiling pot in the midst of like dry sheaves. So that the sign, the picture there is like the leadership is a flame, and if they turn to the right, whatever's on the right, they're going to consume that. And then if the leadership, if they're leading the people and they turn to the left, whatever's on the left, they're going to consume that. So God is encouraging his people by saying, I will make your leaders powerful, consuming type of power. And then next it says that God gives Jerusalem serenity and peace. I mean, imagine the setting. Imagine people coming against you in battle. Imagine the calamity of these drunk horsemen and these blind horses, and all the craziness that may ensue. I mean, just imagine how crazy it is when one horse loses its mind, and you see people like Khan trying to just get it in place. But now we've got this whole thing, and it's calamity, and what God says is, in in those moments, I can actually give you serenity and peace. Serenity is a state of being untroubled. So what God wants his people to know as they're rebuilding the temple is when there is trouble all around, you look to me, and I will keep you in a state of being untroubled, peaceful. It's underrated, but extremely important. And then in verses 7 through 9, it says this. 
And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, may not surpass that of Judah. And then it says, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David um, shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, verse 9, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So we see as God is battling those who are opposed to him, it's this sort of increasing intensity as God battles a hostile world, which is encouraging because it seems like the intensity is ratcheting if you're paying attention, right? It says there will be wars and rumors of wars in the end days. We have that now. There's stuff going on in Ukraine. There's stuff going on in all other parts of the world. I mean, at one point it was Rome who, was con- who wanted to, you know, under the role of Nero, wanted to just destroy Christians. And what happens? Now Rome is a tourist destination and the church is flourishing under the rule of Bloody Mary after the you know, Protestant Reformation and all that. Like Christians were being killed and killed. But now no one's scared of that and the church is flourishing. And so you see this increasing intensity in the hostility and it just continues age after age, generation after generation. And what we see is God first starts by confounding and shaming them. And then he allows them to be wounded by what they are doing, those who are set against God. And then he sends them into dangerous madness. There is no, um, there's no serenity for someone who's gone mad in their minds. It's dangerous. And then finally God destroys Jerusalem's enemies. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. You can, it's like that battle drum. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. If you set yourself against God, you lose. What God is doing with his word is he's discerning the hearts of those who have set themselves against God's people and he's bringing judgment upon them, which is designed in this text to be an encouragement for perseverance for his people in a hard situation. His people who are a war-wearied people in the process of rebuilding, God's judgment upon their enemies is meant to be an encouragement to them to persevere. Now, as we make a transition to chapter 14, it's a bit surprising. Because so far you're thinking, I'm thankful to be on God's team, right? I mean, could we be in a better spot, a sweeter spot, to be under the leadership of the one who's going to do all that crazy stuff? I'm thankful for that, but, but here there's a transition that's a little shocking and very hard to understand, but it's still meant to be understood. Having just seen great favor being given to his children and horrible judgment being given to those who have set themselves against God and who would be his enemies, we now see a puzzling set of verses because the sword is still at work. The sword is a sword of salvation and judgment. It is judgment to those who are against him and salvation to those who receive his word. But chapter 14 is weighty. Martin Luther, raise your hand if you heard Martin Luther. Cool. Luther is a big deal. He's real smart. 
brilliant theologian, the father of the Reformation, the one who informed the, the, the Catholic Church that was totally out of line as to, to how they were out of line, and he was so insightful into the ways of God and God's design for the church that now every generation since the time of Luther has been blessed by Luther's ministry. We're meeting today not having to wear the, the pointy hats of the Catholic Church and do all the different things, but we are here as Protestants free to worship as Scripture actually says, and that's all because of the brilliance of a man that God used named Luther. And when Luther came to Zechariah 14, he said this in his commentary. Here in this chapter, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. Let's read that again. Here in this chapter, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. So we're just going to close in prayer, because I ain't Luther, right? And so we're just going to close in prayer. Now, one of the things that happens when you have a piece of scripture that has, it's, it's apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, it's, it's prophetic, it is figurative, and there's so many details, and when you're trying to figure out all those details, like how does all this work together, one of the best things that you can do in those moments is to zoom out a little bit. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to zoom out a bit and try to figure out what's the prevailing thought of 14. One commentator more says very simply, This seems to be pointing to the last great struggle with the powers of evil and with the church. What we're going to read about here is the final struggle where the powers of evil do the the most evil that they can possibly do to come against the church, to try to destroy the church. This is really going to happen, by the way. And we're going to see what God is going to do in this final battle. So look at verses 1 through 2 in chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. God's saying, they will lay siege to you again. And the same way that Jesus' things were divided between those at the, at the foot of the cross, the soldiers, they, they, they divided his things to see what they wanted to keep. In that same way, your things will be divided. And they'll see what they want to keep. Your, 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 the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. Then in verse 2 it says this, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, houses plundered, and the women raped. The pinnacle of evil's efforts. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. To understand what's happening here, we've got to look at the previous verses in chapter 13, just right at the end. Pastor Kai is going to pick up the second half of 12 and end with 13, and to prepare us just kind of nicely to go right into an Easter series but we're just going to look at those last few verses to understand what the heck just happened in verses 1 and 2 because it seemed like things were going great for God's people and then the most horrible of oppression happens in those two verses. So look at chapter 13. It says this, the second part of 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. He's saying I will turn my hand against the sheep on this final battle. And the whole land declares the Lord... Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left. What we're seeing here is that even within those who claim to be part of the people of God, like at the end of time, the church, there will be those in the church that actually don't have faith, and they don't believe God, and it will be shown in their heart as the the sword does its work of, of going through the bone into the marrow, of going through all the things into the heart and discerning, is there belief there or is there not? So there will be those who claim to follow that don't. So God is just doing this work that he does with his word. 
It says, And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. You see, the ones who persevered will be put into the fire. Why? And refine them as one refines silver. And test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. What's remarkable here is that those who persevere, those who are tested, those who are refined as by fire, the result is not them turning from God. The result is maybe a beleaguered but firm proclamation, the Lord is my God. The third point this morning is God will refine his people through trial. As strange as this text may sound, it's really not. It's in fact a theme throughout all of Scripture. A few examples, 1 Peter 1, 6-7. You have been grieved through various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So you, followers of Christ, will be grieved not just through one or two trials, but in fact through many trials because it's readying you for Jesus coming back. There's something remarkable happening, and it's bigger than just the hurt you're experiencing. It doesn't minimize that hurt. We'll talk about that shortly, but it's, it's bigger than that. Various trials. 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Our problem is that we call things fiery trials that probably aren't even trials at all. Think about those things that just really frustrate you and just like, ugh. Have you ever been at a red light or, and then it turns green and then the person in front of you is like on their phone and then you give the uh-uh and then they go and then right as they get through, the light turns red and you're stuck and you're like, God, what did I do to deserve this moment of smite and wrath? What happened? God, you know everything I have to do. And we turn things in our lives into like trials that really aren't trials and some of us may have grown soft. I know in some ways I have. I will... I will, you ask my kids, when things don't go the way that I think they should go, sometimes I overreact. Acting like something's a big trial, like I've got some burden of the world on my shoulders when it's like, no, it's actually a small inconvenience, just move on. But don't be surprised at the fiery trials. They're real when they come upon you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, a fiery trial preparing us for the return of Jesus. And then in Acts 14.22, it says, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations. Doing what? Preparing you for the entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, which is real and not a fable. Sadly, these are the kinds of verses that oftentimes pastors and churches become embarrassed about. It is a flawed way of thinking to think, I don't want to share with them on Sunday morning that a normal part of their faith is suffering. Like, oh, I finally got my, my coworker, my neighbor, my friend from work to come, and I really hope the pastor doesn't talk about suffering. It's a real buzzkill. But to think and act like that is contrary to the Word of God. It's contrary to that sword coming out of the mouth of the Son of Man. It's contrary 
If God prepares us for his kingdom by telling us that we will suffer and that he will refine us through it, then it is blasphemy to lead people to believe otherwise. It's the worst kind of misleading to make someone believe that there is a narrow path to God that is free from suffering and furthermore decorated with health, wealth, and prosperity. The joy that God has for you is exponentially greater than those things. Church, he plans more for you, not less, even in the suffering. But if you believe that suffering is happening when it's not supposed to be happening, then you will adopt a victim mentality. Just like me sitting at that light going, God, why me? Anything, some, anytime something goes wrong, it's a victim mentality. You're a victim of something t- terribly out of sorts in the universe. Do you, does anyone struggle with that? The slightest thing just, just inconveniences you. And, and, and golly, here I am again just trying to live right, and I'm going to be late again. A victim mentality. Now, I want to be careful because this doesn't minimize your trial. There are some here this morning who are victims of awful things. Those spoken to in chapter 14 were victims of awful things, the final battle of evil against the church, awful things. But what I want us to see is this. To miss the beautiful reality that the hand of God is refining and sanctifying you even when you've been victimized and even in your worst of trials, to miss that is actually to minimize your trial. It minimizes the trial to to say God doesn't have any hand in this because God is refining you in in the trial. God is present with you, an ever-present help in trouble. He is close to those who are brokenhearted, near to those who are crushed in spirit, to say, nope, This is only bad. No, God doesn't waste that, and he is with you, and it minimizes the trial. It makes light of your suffering to assume that God is not refining you in it. If we believe that suffering is happening when it's it's not supposed to be happening, we adopt a victim mentality. And here's something we have to see this morning. A victim mentality is incompatible with a kingdom mindset. A victim mentality is incompatible with the kingdom mindset. Again, hear me. That doesn't minimize whatever it is you've been through. People sitting in this room have been through horrific things. I know. But the victim mentality is incompatible with a kingdom mindset because in our trials, with a victim mentality, we focus on ourselves. And God's saying the same thing to us as, as he did to those in Jerusalem, those rebuilding the temple. Don't focus on yourself in your trial. Focus on me. Reorient yourself to the God of love. A God whose love, in fact, cannot be improved upon in any way, even though you're going through whatever trial it is. He wants us to focus on him. He wants us to know that he's there. And finally, the fourth point, God will reign and rule forever. 
He wants us to know that he is reigning and ruling forever. Look at verses 3 through 9. Because when we're looking to God, we're looking for him, and then we see that he is reigning and ruling forever, what we see is what happens in in verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. So in this final fight before the return of Jesus at the end of days, when when evil is doing its best to bring its worst forms of evil against you, who's fighting for you? God. The ancient of days, the greatest of the greatest, the one who is completely sovereign, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And look at the imagery here. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward And you shall flee in this valley that just appeared that wasn't there a minute ago. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. So you see Jesus standing one foot on this mountain, one foot on this mountain like a complete boss. And all the people who've died before, the holy ones, empty the graves, and they're coming with him. And there's a spring in Jerusalem that's no longer there because now there's a river that's running through this valley. Do you see this imagery? The creator is recreating. He's the only one who can do that, by the way. The creator is is changing the laws of physics and science and topography and saying, we will make a valley here for my people. We will have a mountain. I will stand on this. And it will be a place of refuge and peace and encouragement. And it goes on to say, on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. We've read about that in Revelation, where there's a light, but it's not the sun or the moon, it's coming from our Lord. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. So now this place that didn't even have a river, it has a river, and the, and the river's going to flow in such a way, it will flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. That's not normal. And now this this place is becoming a blessing, a a living river, a river of life going out into the world as God is changing things and recreating. It says in verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. God will rule and reign forever. This just to make sure, like, we understand what this is. Like, this, for the Christians, this is the big show. Like, this is the return of Jesus. Like, the only reason you're still here is because this hasn't happened yet. This is the moment where time melts back into eternity, where history is swallowed up and Jesus is returning. And there is a mountain, these mountains, and there is this valley We see God standing on the mountains with a river bringing life and peace eternally to his church. And we see that Zechariah sees the church in the end as a glorified city with this river flowing within. Now make the jump with me 500 years later. This is so stinking cool to John 7. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 500 years later in the same spot, listen to this. On the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus, in what one commentator refers to as being intentionally dramatic. Jesus is making a point here. He stands up at the temple that was rebuilt by Zechariah's generation. He stands up at the temple 
in the midst of the, of the Jerusalem that was rebuilt by Zechariah's generation, and Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. So let's put all that together and take this in, all right? It's work. These chapters are crazy, but let's do the work. What is prophesied in Zechariah is fulfilled by Jesus in John 7 and is, in fact, speaking to what is going on in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. What's prophesied in Zechariah 14 is fulfilled by Jesus in John 7 and is, in fact, speaking of what is going on in your heart in John chapter, or today, John 7 and and beyond that. He's speaking of what's going on in your heart by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. The river of life now flowing from your heart is designed by God to satisfy the thirst of those who need to be rescued from sin and self and Satan. Do you see what God has done? He's made it now so that as a church, your heart is a river of life to others. It doesn't terminate on you. The gospel doesn't terminate on you. It's not just about your testimony. Your story as you sit here today is the story of a people that's been going on for ages and ages. And part of your story is that your heart becomes a conduit that you may be a blessing to others, that you can bring the good news of the gospel to others. This says in Romans, uh, in Romans how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of, of the gospel. That is what your design is. And in the rest of the chapter, we see a continuation of God conquering his enemies, a sort of cleaning house. He's cleansing every part of his house, consecrating every single part of his new dwelling to himself. He has gathered for himself a people from among every nation of earth. And it says in verses 20 and 21, and on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. The point there is not that the bells of the horses are important. The bells of the horses are common. It would be like saying, and then in that day in the home, when, when Jesus comes back and he's consecrated this place, inscribed on you know, the side of the sure 58 mic, it'll say holy to the Lord. Inscribed on the monitor, inscribed on the back of the, really everywhere you look, everything is consecrated and holy to the Lord. It says in 21, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be, no longer be a traitor, one who offers indulgences, one who is selling sacrifices in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Our final point this morning is that God's eternal plan is a holy people in a holy place. All this is moving in that direction. God's eternal plan is a holy people in a holy place. Phillips, one of the commentators, says it like this. It's beautiful. The achievement of all God's desire in history is crowned not only with the eternal reign of Christ as Lord, but also in the presentation of a perfect and holy bride for God's Son. Why is holiness so important right now? It's because it's the end of the game. God's preparing you ultimately to be holy, the church to be a beautiful bride. Probably most of the people sitting here have some form of church hurt. And you may look at the church as maybe a little more homely and not quite the beautiful bride described here. But God's work isn't done. The church will be a beautiful bride adorned in his righteousness right there with him as he rules and reigns forever. 
The picture is that of total and complete holiness. God's entire redemptive purpose and plan, reaching back into eternity and spinning out through the ages, his whole plan has at its goal a perfectly holy people in a perfectly holy city. That's what we're anticipating. And he closes with a question that I feel led to close with today. If this is God's goal, a perfectly holy city with a perfectly holy people in it with him, sanctified by the blood of Christ, the gift received by faith, the question that we close with today is this. What do you think you will like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? What do you think you will like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? Let's pray. Lord, our hope this morning is that with each day, with each trial, um, that, that we would care more about holiness. Lord, I confess in front of this whole group my sins of not caring enough about holiness, of going about the day and having my plan and not giving too much thought to my holiness. And Lord, I pray that you would use these scriptures to change that in my heart. We would all say that holiness is important, but Lord, this shows us that it is our, it is our final destination. It is the end game. It is the big thing. When Jesus comes back, it's a, it's a completely holy people in a completely holy place. And so Lord, we rejoice in that you didn't just create the possibility of holiness but you achieve it for us because we can't achieve it on our own. Help us to embrace that, to live according to that, to honor you with our lives. As it says in, in Romans, that, that we would um, present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God in everything we do. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.